You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. Emmeline Zhao joins me today to discuss this incredible journey, a life filled with amazing events covering the 2008 Beijing Olympics, working for the Wall Street Journal, associate editor Huff Post, and now managing partner of one of the best restaurants in New York City, Silver Apricot. I am incredibly fortunate today to have Emmeline Zhao here, managing partner of Silver Apricot. Um, it's a incredible story about how she got here. That's why she's here today. And that's what we're going to talk about. And thank you for being on today. Thank you for having yeah. me. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about your past and how you did get here. Because I, if you Google you, so much incredible stuff pops up about the, you know being a journalist and your your journalist uh, background. But um, let's go back because I know you're from North Carolina, but you're in Shanghai, and then you travel to Tokyo, and you're in Sweden. And I'm just, how does this like evolve? What was this like? Uh, you, I mean, you, you're overeducated. <laughs> Duke, Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> there's as as a Chinese mother would tell you, there can always more. There's always more to be had. Yeah. So, um, how far back do you want me to go? Uh let's. Uh, yeah, let's. I. You went to Duke. I did. Do you fall in love with basketball when you're at Duke? I actually fell in love with basketball way before that. Okay. I um, I grew up in Chapel Hill, so if anybody. If sure. Dean Smith or Mike Krzyzewski, that's your choice. Oh, it's a tough one. Um, I, I grew up a Carolina fan. My dad was a professor at Carolina. I uh, grew up in Chapel Hill. My, and you went to Duke? I know. It was... Wow. I was very much a traitor in that sense, but it was all all worth it. Um, my my childhood room is definitely still painted Carolina blue. I'll, I right. would unfortunately admit to that. Um <laughs> my my uh, UNC friends have a joke. They say this is a moral dilemma. Um, you have uh, Dean Smith walks into an elevator. No, uh, the UNC. So Mike Krzyzewski walks into an elevator at the time Osama bin Laden was alive. Walks into an elevator. I have a gun with one bullet. <laughs> that's a moral <laughs> dilemma. I mean, that's how rabid these basketball fans are, right? It's brutal. Yeah. It's definitely brutal, and it gets even worse when you put all of the fans in a room. <laughs> right, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, going going way, way back, I guess, I um, uh, I was born in Wisconsin and moved down to North Carolina because my dad got a job at, right. at Carolina. Spent a lot of my time between Shanghai and North Carolina because that's where my family is from. My parents and my grandparents and extended family are all in, are all in Shanghai. And I went to school in Shanghai for a few years. And that was something that was... I think one of the most formative experiences for me as a really young kid. Just switching the cultural on that, going from North Carolina to Shanghai, because obviously you're speaking Chinese, right? Yes. Um, and, <laughs> you know, growing up in, in North Carolina as, as an Asian kid in the early 90s was rough. You know, you don't. Yeah. You don't really become as acutely aware as uh, as acutely aware of how different you are mm -hmm. um, until you're in the South in the '90s as a person of color. And then I went to Shanghai for school, and I was the American. And you know, you wow. weren't Chinese enough. And you had the outsider role in both both places. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. 
it conditions you as a kid. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not the most welcoming experience, right. but uh, you get you get kind of you grow tougher skin, um, thicker right. skin. You grow thicker skin with that, and. Uh, I still remember, you know, the grass is always greener. Mm-hmm. I still remember when I first went to Shanghai. Um, they, uh, my my Chinese was atrocious. It was it was so bad, and I was supposed to be in the second grade. Uh, the principal there said, "No, you're lo- you're not at grade level. We're going to move you back to back down to the first grade." And I retaliated so hard. (laughs) (laughs) I was not happy about that. I was very proud of being a second grader, and I was not going to go back to the first grade. Um, But I still remember my very first math test. They do pre-tests there. And they just wanted to see where you're at. And it was all word problems. And I could barely read Chinese. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) So I was the kid that was sitting in the back of the room raising my hand because I could understand and I could speak. Reading was a challenge. And so I was the kid in the back of the room raising my hand every 10 seconds, asking the teacher to read the word problem to me to to the extent that after, I think, two of the questions, she just said, just figure it out. (laughs) Wow. Just figure it out. So I could see this forging a very independent spirit. I mean, you have to be strong at such a, a young age. Uh, to deal with that, and also to have apparently quite a fighting spirit, like, fuck you, <laughs> I'm going to figure this out. Yeah, there was uh, a lot of that because I think there's a, you, you immediately go into defense mode when right. you go into a foreign space and you're right. immediately different. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't matter what you look like or how you behave. They have preconceived notions about who you are and you have to defend yourself. So that fighting spirit, I think, definitely came from being a second grader uh, in China not belonging and then being you know a first and then later fourth grader in the states and not belonging um, I remember coming back to the states so I was in China for second and third grade mm-hmm. um, I remember coming back to the states in the fourth grade and them immediately putting me in ESL without the, even ESL, the accelerated uh, English is a, a oh, second language okay, right, okay. and I was so upset by that I said once again yeah uh, it was yeah. it was really immediate and uh, it was because I had just come from China it wasn't because I had been born in the States it wasn't because English right. was my first language it was just that you know this kid came straight from China she needs to go to ESL and that was a really that was a really eye-opening experience for me too to see what ESL was like for a lot of students so what give me a, a, a lay of the land in that classroom who's there is it you have kids from you know Haiti is it kids from Japan is, I mean, like, what's it look like? In North Carolina? Yeah. Oh, it was. In the ESL. Oh, yeah. in ESL. <clears throat> no, it was one-on-one. So oh, we didn't okay. have a separate class. I had one-on-one tutoring with an ESL instructor. Mm. And I remember them doing these note cards. It was almost like um, ad-libs. Right. So there would be blank spaces for where you think a word should go. Right. And I remember being frustrated because I was like, this could be any verb. Right. You know, it was, the picture was, or the the prompt would be like, the dog blinked. And you're like, he could have barked, he could have run, he yeah. could have, and it felt very frustrating. I because love it. You're, you're already, you're already. There's your journalism. You're already editing. <laughs> That's, yeah. yeah, but it was. I think that was my first. That was my first foray into what alternative education was like in the states mm-hmm. for those that weren't in a traditional classroom like the one that I was in. And I, I felt frustrated for my peers that had to go through that program because imagine if it were somebody who's, who for whom English was truly a second language, right? Um, that's even more frustrating than for somebody like me who knows that there are many, many answers to the same question. Right. But I think for somebody else, there was, you know, for the teacher or for the educator at the time, there was only one answer. And that maybe pigeonholes the student into understanding what the English language is. 
So uh, we're going to jump around because because we're going to talk about the Beijing Olympics for a second. But but uh, you know this ties. Um, I was doing uh, a lot of just kind of research on you and, the, uh, and your associate editor for HuffPost, and um, you co- covered a lot of education. Um, both good parts and the bad parts of you know finding the best and the brightest teens to um, how the schools in particularly in New York City so underserve um, poor communities. Um, so is that it's that ties in I think your kind of uh, of your early you know kind of um, you know, dealing with you know, being in these kind of situations, right? Yeah, I think I was very acutely aware of how the education system, served and didn't serve me and people like me and Mm. also people unlike me. Um, Coming from a family where academics was at the very top of everything, having a father who is a professor, having been educated in multiple multiple countries in different systems, um, and also constantly having an awareness of how much an education matters for your personal future. Um, I was... Having education always at top of mind also made me see the world in such a way where it was understanding why and why and how education matters, right. um, and how it's very different for for everybody. Um, we talk a lot in education about how there's no one size fits all, and that's become even more apparent over the last two years during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, we question now whether college is even worth going. Uh, we were just talking about tuition rates and what's the return on investment when you go to uh, these, these great schools or or, or B schools that are still $60,000 a year and you come out a quarter million dollars in debt. Oh, big time. And that was actually how I fell into education from a professional standpoint. Um, in the very beginning, I was a uh, I was on the economics desk at the Wall Street Journal just out of the last recession. And as a young reporter, as a young economics reporter, I was kind of still figuring my way around the economics beat because it's so broad. Mm-hmm. And in my in my story idea hashing, I became deeply interested in, um, in why highly educated people were still coming out with no ability to find jobs. You know, with with joblessness at an at an extreme high at the time, I can't remember. I can't remember if it was an all time high, but we were seeing a phenomenon where where uh, undergrad or recent grads were going back into master's programs and right. MBAs and law school and as a as a way to hide from the economy because they couldn't sure. find jobs. But then they came out of it a year or two later, uh, still unable to find jobs, right. and so. That's where the like, to what extent is higher ed worth it? That's the question that you I really wanted to answer. Yeah, um, and that's how I started to carve a little niche in my economics beat into education, mm-hmm. and just became deeply fascinated by the intersection of education and the economy, um, because you know, even now in education we talk a lot about what works and what doesn't. But I do think that we still struggle to, and this is the work that I'm continuing to do now, to to correlate education and jobs. Like, what are your outcomes? What are the outcomes that we want to see from education, higher ed, adult ed? Um, just to say that, you know, education makes you a more well-rounded person isn't really good enough to quantify. No. And you come out and you're 200 plus thousand dollars in debt. And I, I always think, like, it's... There should be some way where what you go to school for 
um, and what you want to do, there should be a, a well, there is an average pay scale of that job, and somehow retro that into your college tuition, um, so that you're paying if you come out and we need teachers and we need you know jobs that you know not everybody can be an investment banker, but a teacher who comes out is going to make eighty five thousand dollars a year is never going to be able to pay off two hundred fifty thousand dollars, right? And but. The idea that we've been sold is there's only one way to be successful, and you get into the best school possible, and you work really hard, and you'll get a job when you come out. And that model's broken. It is. And the pandemic has been, I think, a catalyst for looking at alternative methods of education and just looking at the system more broadly. Um, I don't, you know, I think that the reason why I do this work is to examine how we can examine what is working and what isn't and how we can move forward and how do we get our we have you know the biggest economy in the world but what feeds that economy um, and how do we get our future generations to be able to maintain and foster and feed that economy right. well i think one of the things that the school systems have done in cahoots with the government because the last thing you can never default on your student loans right so one thing declare bankruptcy you still have to pay your student loan the, the problem is we've been sold this bill of goods. The only way to get it successful is through this higher education, knowing that you won't get these jobs. And it outpaces inflation. Uh, college tuitions are through the roof. And sold this idea like you don't want to be a plumber. You don't want to be an electrician. You, they, I mean, the country, I think, put, took this position. They looked down their nose at these kind of jobs, which we all need plumbers and electricians, and they're amazing jobs, or garage mechanics. or. But we've been told, like, there's only two. There's higher education and tech. That's where you're going to make all your money, and that's what we're going to focus on. And kids have been told that. I have two kids. I've been told that, you know, uh, you know, I grew up listening to that story, too. And now, like, there's no more shop class in high school, right? <laughs> Like, yeah, it's, it's sad. You know, this is, uh, it's actually something that we examined. Um, so I now work for a company called The 74. It's a nonprofit news organization focused on education coverage. And about two years ago, we did a piece examining whether the American dream is the downfall, the ultimate downfall of our ability to to educate and feed our economy. Because the question we wanted to answer was, is this notion that you can be an American and do anything that you want and you can succeed at whatever you want to do, is that notion broken and is that creating false expectations for our kids? Um, because we're not, if we're not thinking strategically about what our needs in the market are going to be 20 right. years down the line and feeding our children into a system that sets them up for success for the needs of our labor market. Right. Then are we creating just a, is there this quixotic ideology of, of what America needs and what it can be? Right. Yeah, no, there's, a, there's, a, there's definitely a bit of a shell game going on, right? That we should, this is the only way. And there's not just one way to succeed and be happy. And the market is changing. You know, um, you look at, uh, you know, talk about looking into the future. I mean, there'll be no truck drivers. Truck drivers, you know, really are, are the backbone of this country. Supply chains, which we've all just been too intimate with recently, have, have proven this. But those jobs go away. And these guys are stuck. And it's mostly men. And more women are going to college now and trying to figure out than men in this country. And that, that's exactly, you know, what I think Andrew Yang was pushing, too, is like, what are we doing 10 years from now? Uh, AI is going to take a lot of these jobs. How are we adjusting? But it's the same narrative because there's so much money in education, right? And these schools have ridiculous trusts, hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, they could, they could help us figure it out. 
In higher ed, yeah. Higher ed, yes, yes. <laughs> Harvard, you know, things like that, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, and to that end, too, we're still dealing with a lot of a lot of inequities and yeah. in K-12 especially, and public education, I think, is a battlefield politically, economically, ideologically. You know, education is one of those things that are so, it's so politicized that really shouldn't yeah. be. And, you know, every child should have a right to an equal education and we're still figuring out what that means because we are an extremely diverse country. And I think that we're dealing with a lot of issues, a lot of socioeconomic issues, a lot of political issues that most other countries don't deal with. Um, And to, you know, we look a lot to, we, there's a lot of talk in education about Singapore math, what, Mm. and what, um, what Germany, for example, is doing really well in terms of vocational education. And I think it's really important to look at what other countries are doing and inform us but I don't think there's any model that we can we can replicate and mimic here because of the very unique needs that mm. our country has. Yeah, true. I mean, look at in Europe and like France. If you pass a test, you want to go to college, you pass a test. Otherwise, they put you into the trades, which you make a ton of money. And and it's just like that's they're they're shaping the the future of their children or giving them opportunity and but putting them on a road where they can be successful and buy a house and have a family and be able to live. Uh, and it's kind of the opposite here. I talked to a. Uh, principal in the Bronx, and she said that they don't have Wi-Fi in the school. They bring a bus. They pull a bus up outside with routers so that the kids can log on to these shared computers. I mean, the inequity of that in the digital world that we live in, information is is the new currency, and and these kids can't, don't have access to it. So, uh, exactly, but we're going to take a drink of wine, and we're going to (laughs) slide into basketball. So, we're going to drink some Edifos uh, Peak Pool. Uh, pig pools are great, as you know, uh, grown more in the uh, uh, southern Rhone. Uh, but this is just uh, similar temperatures in Lodi, east of Lodi, and it's um, uh, foot trod, uh, pretty organic. Uh, Joe Ryan makes it from uh, Ernest, and it's all stainless steel, and it's just pretty and floral. And I thought, uh, cheers. Cheers. And, and then we'll segue into uh, something a, a little more lighter. <laughs> oh, that's delicious. Ooh. That works. Yeah. That works. Joe is Joe's brilliant. And um, I was actually just in Lodi. And I didn't know you knew him. Well, I had I had lunch with him um, as a part of a T. Edward lunch, I think, oh, a few okay. months ago. Okay. I learned that he's from Nebraska. Yeah, he's, uh, just he's before, corn fed. Yeah. yeah, just before I went to Nebraska for a documentary. So it was... All right, we're going to talk about your dog. This could be like a, <laughs> I, we could do a six-part series on your life, by the way. Uh, but we're going to talk about basketball. Uh, so you... Covered the 2008 Beijing Olympics? You had to be a kid. Uh, I, it was not. So I didn't cover the Olympics as a you whole. Basketball. You did uh, basketball. Baseball right? and basketball. Okay. Predominantly baseball. Um, basketball was in the same complex. So there were, you know, I was on a team where you were, you had predominant assignments. And then sometimes when there were needs for people to fill in, you'd fill in on the other side. Please tell me you got a chance to talk to Kobe or D. Wade or LeBron James <laughs> or Dwight Howard, who was on that 2008 Olympic team. I did, all okay. of them very briefly uh, okay. in what we call the mixed zone. So oh. that's kind of where the, that's where the reporters all congregate as the athletes are moving their way into the locker room. And so you're all, you know, clamoring for, for the quote and clamoring to get a hot second with them. But yeah, that was really, really fun. How I think cool is that? It it was it was uh, an experience that I don't think I had, you know, I never thought I would be able to have. It was, uh, it was dynamic. Yeah. It, it was very, very different from anything I'd ever done in the past. That sounds so cool. Um, 
And it was there was such an urgency to hit that dead to hit deadline because I was technically doing work for the Olympic News Service, which is the right. wire service of the Olympics. And everything that went out, everything had to go out on on the wire in a matter. I think the deadline was like thirty minutes or something like that. And so you had to do the interviews, transcribe it, and then push it out onto the wire service wow. all within thirty minutes. And that was just wild because. I think the hardest thing for me at the time was being put on assignment not only for so this, going back to baseball because I was doing mostly baseball, but not only being put on covering the American and Canadian teams, I was the only person on our team that spoke Chinese and the only person on our team that spoke Spanish. So wow, you the go to having to cover <laughs> the Chinese team and the Cuban team and recalibrating my brain in three different languages and Holy translating shit, those into English <laughs> was so hard, but it was a great practice of my language skills. Yeah, that was, a, that was one of the probably most successful Olympics. Yao Ming had the national flag. Uh, Michael Phelps had like uh, cemented his legacy with all his like gold medals he won that year. Yeah, it was a crazy Olympics. It was, um, and also I think that was Coach K's first year as the national team coach. And it was the Redeem team, and we were ready to bring it all back, and yeah. we did. It was also uh, the final year of, of baseball, and so for us to be able to be a part of that was was really, really great. That's pretty crazy. So what, what's astounding is you're this incredible journalist, and it started young in your life, and then you go to the, the Wall Street Journal, and you do economics and the economy of the, I guess, the emerging China-U.S. economies, which, you know, most people can't wrap their head around, including me. It just sounds good coming out of my mouth. I don't really know what the fuck that means. But it's so complex. And then you're at uh, Associate Editor HuffPost, and you have this incredible journalism career going. So how does the restaurant bug come in here? <laughs> how do you end up at one of these, uh, this amazing, by the way, restaurant in the, in the West Village? How does that happen? Early burnout? <laughs> really? Yeah. It was, it, was it the pressure, the deadlines, the? It was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot to handle. Um, you know, so I I went to the Huffington Post. They they recruited me to launch their education vertical at the time, during which I frankly had no knowledge or understanding of education from from a political from a policy and from a coverage standpoint. I just created this niche right in economics that was covering education tangentially, and. Well, they said, like, look, if you're willing to learn, we can figure it out. And I said, yeah, great. You know, I was young. I had an opportunity to, to right. be an editor and to lead uh, very quickly. And so I took it. Um, the Huffington Post is is a very different organization and a very different publication from which I had to learn a lot of new media, um, things that I had never dealt with before. The first time I'd ever had to really work with SEO was at the Huffington Post. Oh, okay. The first time I'd really had to, like, to understand how social media ties into your coverage was at the Huffington Post. Because the Wall Street Journal doesn't do as great a job connecting digitally? Well, at the Journal, you had more you had more linear roles. So yeah, okay. you kind of did your work as a reporter, and then somebody else dealt with the optimization and, and right. okay. you know, integrating all of it. Um, at Huffington, it was a lot more ton more young people you know it was very much still a growing startup and everybody kind of had to do everything so I definitely learned a ton while I was there I wouldn't take any of it back um, but it was also a very grueling experience because you're doing everything and I was tired you know just, and just done and burned yeah out. I was tired yeah. and I couldn't figure out uh, I couldn't figure out if I was I was exhausted of it because of journalism or if it was because of the nature of the work that I was doing there and I just needed some time to figure it out 
And, it, and it's one of those jobs that doesn't sound nine to five. It's like a story breaks you there. Yeah, and, definitely. And they're texting you, hey, get on this. And you're like, okay. Very much so. Right. And to power to the people that are doing it, yeah. you know, and power to the people that are still doing it. It's so much. Can I ask you, where do you get your news from? Because I find like, you know, like most uh, Americans are really searching for the truth. First, it's so hard to find these days. I, I look at the BBC and I do the Christian Science Monitor. I do CNN. I do HuffPost. I do. And I, I even look at uh, Breitbart sometimes just to, I don't know, to scare myself, I suppose, <laughs> give myself nightmares. But so what is your news source that you look at, particularly as an insider? Well, the 74, first and foremost. Okay. Yeah, I looked at it. It's very good. It's very objective. Um, but do you have other sources that you use that you're like, if you need to, oh, I, I'm not believing this. It's like, when the, remember when they found Trump's tax returns years ago? And I was like, that's total bullshit. There's no way they just find these. In a, you know, and it was total bullshit. But, and, and the Times reported it. Everybody reported it. Um, yeah, you know... As a as a journalist, you have to get your source. You have to get your information from elsewhere. That's not your <laughs> publication, yeah, obviously, right. to to inform you in in many different angles. And I, you know, my morning typically starts with the top three, and that's the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Um, that's also very much, and I, I I do recognize that we very much exist in what we often call the Acela Corridor, which is this bubble of the East Coast, sure, yep. and things happen to the west of us and on the other side of the country that we don't quite see on a daily basis. Um, but first and foremost, those are the news sources that I go to for top news of the day right. um, and understanding what's happening in the economy, um, understanding what's happening in our country. Otherwise, I think that even within those, so like the New York Times, I think is great for local news. Um but you know, I'm also I also read a lot of newsletters. Yeah. So you know, Axios and Politico are newsletters that like I'm Politico. constantly on top Ex- of. For like pop culture stuff, I like Airmail. Graydon Cardos. Okay. I don't know if you've delved into that. It's really cool. No, okay. He he finds fantastic stories of lost, you know, you know artists and you know it, it's really a, for for the pop culture part of it. But that's that's that's, that's one of my favorites. Uh, so you get totally burned out, and we are going to get to the. The restaurant. So give me the first time you had a bottle of wine or ate some food and you're like, you know, this would be fun to do. So. And by the way, it's not. <laughs> for the record. I know. For tell, the record. You're telling me. <laughs> there's a satisfaction to it, but fun. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I think that there's. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think. It goes. It goes way back. You know, my my dad really enjoys wine, but he enjoys box wine. <laughs> <laughs> and I was as I when I was a kid, I just didn't get it, and yeah. I I felt embarrassed that we had box wine in the fridge all the time, even though I didn't know any better, right? I just yeah. felt like a bottle looked nicer, and I would there would be times where my mom and I would go to the grocery store, and my dad would be like, "Can you bring back some wine?" And my mom would say, "You know what kind?" And he would say, "Just the cheapest one, yeah. whatever's the cheapest, it's fine." And so. That kind of got me thinking, you know, why is this cheaper and what makes, like, what's the difference there? I never never really got into it until I was in college. And I still remember my senior year, (laughs) my senior year, my roommate and I both really loved wine. Um, And during a a formal event, it was like a sorority fraternity formal event, uh, I was the troublemaker that brought my bottle of Kim Crawford. Snuck, okay, it in, Blanc, yeah. snuck it into the venue <laughs> because there would be no good wine right. at the venue. <laughs> <laughs> 
and definitely got in trouble with the caterers for that. But, yeah. you know, I think that that was that planted the seed pretty quickly. And uh, I'm, I think maybe it's a, f- a function of being a journalist or maybe this was how I became a journalist. But I'm always deeply curious about things that I'm directly in contact with and attached to. And I don't like not having answers to things. And I always want to know why and how. Right. And I think that's why I got into wine, because I knew I liked it. Right. But I wanted to know why I liked it. I wanted to know what made one bottle different from another. Right. And I wanted to know, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I like to call myself a life optimist. Like, I like to know that my dollar is going as far as it possibly can. I like that. And I want to know why that dollar can go further. And I think wine is something that is so opaque for the average consumer that, frankly, it was just out of self-interest that yeah. I wanted to know that what I was buying was worthwhile and why it was worthwhile and why I was drinking what I was drinking and why I liked it. And so I tell people, like, just find something you like and then continue to just explore and taste and explore and taste. But how do you get into the restaurant business? Because mm. that's a that's a big jump. Yeah. So going back to the burnout, um, in my exploration of wanting to figure it out, I was going through this phase of, you know, I'd, I'd always known that I love restaurants. At the time, I was spending so much time going home and reading Eater like nobody's business. Um I followed celebrity chefs. I followed restaurants. I was always on top of, like, where to go using the very little money that I had. There was no disposable income, and I spent it all there. And uh, I was like, maybe maybe restaurants is something that I should look at because I love it so much sitting from the outside. And also growing up as a kid, you know, having – my mom traveled a lot for work. My dad was always at at work because he was a research professor. So I made a lot of meals at home, and when I put up the meals, I'd write on the little, uh, we had a little blackboard that we practiced Chinese on, but I would write up a little menu on right. the blackboard, and this is, you know, this is what we're having for dinner. And so I'd always loved playing restaurant as a right. kid, huh. and I wanted to explore what that looked like in in real adult life. <laughs> so I was kind of just flipping through, I was looking at maybe going, going to culinary school. Um, right. I was flipping through job boards, and I saw that a chef that I had admired for a very long time was opening a new restaurant and i said maybe this is an opportunity uh and it was wiley dufresne he was opening his second restaurant alder in the east village and i sent in my resume and a cover letter and i said in the cover letter like i have no restaurant experience i've never done it before uh i will do any job you're looking for i just kind of want to have this experience and see what it's like and i've always admired wiley's work from afar yeah he's an amazing chef yeah and i uh didn't expect to get a call back at all i almost didn't go to the interview because it was snowing and i was just like am i doing the right thing this doesn't feel right i don't i feel like an imposter story of my life and i Got my got my stuff together, went to the interview, and um, I asked the GM at the time, you know, why did you even give me a callback? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. There's so many other people that are so much more qualified for this job. And she says, well, you wrote a cover letter? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, yeah. until then I didn't realize wasn't something people did. Right. Uh, and now being on this side of things, I'm like, ah, yeah. You could tell a lot. <laughs> you could tell a lot. I get resumes sent to me and like, when there's like typos or like you actually did you actually put down you work somewhere for three months do you know what no. that tells me what? yeah yeah <laughs> I'm like okay thank you yeah uh. so <clears throat> it was it was interesting it was very eye-opening in that sense and uh so 
she offered me she offered me a job as a host mm-hmm. and i worked my way through through front of house there and did a little bit of everything and really started to learn more about restaurant operations food wine obviously right. um and that's kind of how it all got started cool i had his dad on dewey oh yeah he's uh, great he's just like him and i have been around forever since you know we worked the last supper, the both of us. Uh, yeah. I think he was a psalm. I was the wine director. But, uh, yeah, no, he's uh, he had great stories. And Wiley, I've eaten at every restaurant he's opened. Uh, he's an amazing chef. So then how do we get to the silver apricot? How do yeah. we get there? Because uh, explain what the food is. I mean, cause the, the menu reads like everybody just salivating it, you know, listening to this. But explain that. So while I was at Alder, mm-hmm. um, Alder had a lot of overlap with WD50, Wiley's first restaurant, in terms of team and um, overall, I think, overall DNA. Um, and Simone Tong, who is now my chef partner, um, she was a cook in Wiley's kitchens. Oh. So I met her working for Wiley. Um, and she one day, <laughs> she's this this ball of energy that... Um, it's it's very hard to describe her until you've actually met her, and she she has no filter in in the greatest of ways. And there was one day when she was you know we had a basement prep kitchen, and there was one day where I think I was rushing around before service trying to get my apron on, and she's deboning or scaling fish or something, and just covered in fish scales, and she just yells at me and she goes, "Emmeline, yes, Simone, <laughs> why aren't we friends?" And I said, I don't, I didn't realize we weren't friends. Right. (laughs) And she said, no, 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 no. Like friends outside of work friends and we should be friends. And I said, wow. Okay. Yeah. um, Great. (laughs) Uh, And I guess the the rest is history there. And so we, we, you know, even after Alder closed, we, we kept in touch and she and I had late night after service before Alder closed had conversations about dreams of having a restaurant together and that was something that was so far off in the horizon in my life because i still had you know i was working at i was working for for chef wiley just part-time and that was something that i did on the side uh i was still in journalism at the time and so for me opening a restaurant was always like my retirement plan so to speak which you know now having done it is completely idiotic to think that that's a (laughs) retirement plan yeah but it was it was a pipe dream and i didn't realize until i think it was about 2 years later this is you know she called me up and she said hey i i have i'm uh, i have a space i have a concept i wow. have investors i need some help and i said okay let me talk to you about how I can guide you through some of this process in like the operation side of things because she's largely back of house and right. I was like I can help you on this front just let me know how I can you know give you some guidance and she was like okay well I'm doing a pop-up just to test just to test the concept um, come to my pop-up see if you like the food see if you like the concept and then we'll chat and you can think about it very cool and I said great buy tickets and I also said, you know, by the way, if you need any help on the pop-up front, let me know. And she was like, no, 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 I got it. I got it. I got it. The day before the pop-up, she calls me and she says, hey, so um, I actually kind of really need that help. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And I said, what do you, yeah. Now this how, sounds we, like the beginning oh, of yeah. the story. Yeah. And so I said, um, okay, how can I help you? And she was like, I don't have any servers for this pop-up. <laughs> okay. And I was like, okay, how many tickets have you sold? And she said, like, 100, 150. Wow, that's a lot. And I said, you don't have any servers Holy for shit. this? Holy yeah. So I agreed to help her out. It was, you know, it was a Saturday afternoon, and um, I effectively paid to go work. Because yeah, my relinquished right. <laughs> yeah, my yeah, tickets, yeah, yeah. and that's how it really all unfolded. I got more and more involved in helping out, and that helping out became um, partnership. And so then we gradually opened a total of three little tongs right. over the course of, I believe, three years. And unfortunately, all of them closed during the pandemic. Yeah, um, that's just the reality of things. But before we were going, before the pandemic, we had already been planning a separate concept, which is now Silver Apricot. And that's how that all came about. And we had always felt like Little Tongue was our first foray into understanding how we work and how we work together and how, you know, what food, what concept the city needs. It's a, It was a lot of like feeling and testing out the waters. Right. I felt like we got a broader understanding of of the restaurant industry while we were doing Little Tong, but at the same time, never really fully got a grasp on on how people behave in New York. Um, but that's also some that's just a fault of mine to try to always understand. <laughs> <laughs> and you realize that humans are not predictable, True. particularly in yeah. New York. So, the original concept for Silver Apricot at the time, and this was you know our idealism, was a fine dining Chinese restaurant tasting menu, which we felt like at the time didn't really exist in New York. We felt like we were carving out a space that was important and necessary, especially coming from backgrounds like ours where I'm a first-generation Chinese American Mm -hmm. um, and Simone is a first-generation immigrant Chinese American. She was actually naturalized a couple of years ago. Very proud of it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that was being of that identity was navigating who you are and how you eat, but also based on what you could get. So when I grew up in the 90s, uh, you, there was no there was no Chinese produce in, in North Carolina. Um, yeah. You know, it was a lot of, we would go to the farmer's market and you could find collard greens. You know, you could find corn. You could find... Pork. A lot of pork, <laughs> pork. which uh, is great for a Chinese family. Yeah, but, right. you know, yeah. it was... It was very, very different. There were no, like, you know, we eat a lot of carp in Chinese food, but carp doesn't, that's not a thing here. There was a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, there's a lot of catfish in North Carolina and a lot of trout. And so it was figuring, it was a, it was a lot of my mom figuring that way around American and North Carolinian ingredients, right. but in the Chinese preparations that she knew. And how was that she? sounds delicious. Yeah, it was, <laughs> you know, we had a lot of collard stir fry. We yeah. had, you know, we had a lot of hot dog, you know, hot dog lo mein. And whenever people talk about fusion, you know, I, I don't think it's intentionally fusion. It is just... You an, live it. Yeah. It yeah. is an ability to make what you know with what you have. So I think that Silver Apricot was very much a... It was a, an ev- evolution of that, of that background. Um, so we were supposed to open in March of 2020. Obviously, that can yep. happen because yeah. this little thing called a pandemic hit us and we delayed opening until July and in that period of time I spent a lot of time one figuring out relief for my team that we had to lay off at Little Tong yeah. 
um, writing a lot of grant proposals, <laughs> and also trying to figure my way around how do we make silver apricot something that is responsive to the current climate. Mm-hmm. We felt like a tasting menu was not something that the world needed at the time. And we had to completely revamp what we were thinking about doing. So we dropped the tasting menu concept and said, we're going to go a la carte. We're in a world right now where the community needs us, the neighbors need us, and we need to be here to serve them. That's a good call. Um, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a tough but also obvious decision. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely was a major hit to our bottom line, being that we were also sitting on rent and all of these other overhead costs that we couldn't really cover. Um, but it was critical to us that we were serving the neighbors and the community and New York City as a whole. Um, people didn't need a $250 check average at the time. Right. So we went to that a la carte model and then continued to iterate. And so I think that, you know, now we're coming up on two. Well, no, we've already, we just turned two. So in the two years that we've been around, I, I feel like I've opened eight different restaurants. Right. It's been so <laughs> different over and over and over again. And I can only hope, though, that our core mission to be community-oriented and neighborhood-serving, but also really allowing the Chinese-American identity to shine through has has succeeded. I, yeah, I think it will. I, 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 so. I definitely think it will. Uh, we have to touch very quickly before we get to the final question. So you, you do also uh, filmmaking, documentaries. What, what is there subjects matter, matters you love to cover uh, in this um, uh, medium or... Yeah, I or you think, look for stories constantly to tell. Um, yes, you know. So the the core component of my of my role at the seventy four is projects based and also mm-hmm. multimedia and documentary filmmaking. They kind of tie in together. Right. Um, projects, however, can also be text based and photo based. But as far as the filmmaking goes, I think people are just fascinating, you know. And I think that there are so many incredible humans doing very difficult work. Uh, particularly in edu- particularly in education, yeah. and you know that's also why I was in Nebraska was to was to profile an incredible incredible educator there who grew up in a small town of 190 people, traveled the world, highly educated, and then decided to go back because she felt like she had a responsibility to her community. And similarly, we profiled a teacher in Hawaii who went out of her way to raise funds for her students who couldn't afford meals, couldn't afford clothing. and Such great stories. It really yeah. is. And I think that even if they're not directly affecting change in a policy standpoint, you know, when we talk about education, it's, I think it's inspiring people that, one, to, it inspires people that there's, one, there's hope. And two, I think it in- inspires people to take action. To do something. Yeah. Right. And I think it also... It really lets us understand that um, not everything is policy based, mm-hmm. and I think that there can be things happening on the ground that are really making a difference in people's lives. Yeah, grassroots stuff. Yeah. Big time. Okay, so we are at the part of the show now where uh, God has come to you in a dream and said, "I need this delicious lo mein with corn and black truffles, but I want you to prepare it for me. I need you to bring it to me. So I'm going to give you a gift. I'll give you a last day on the planet so you can have your last meal. So what are you eating for that last meal? What are you drinking? And what piece of music are you listening to as you float off into the clouds with your... Uh, 
chef's knife bag and noodles. <laughs> Well, I don't. I don't carry a chef's knife so okay. much as I, I carry a corkscrew, okay. Okay, <laughs> or so, oh, okay. a wine key, right? Okay. Um, but yeah, I think I'm. I'm very much of a, a moody eater and a moody drinker. Okay. okay. <laughs> so it depends. I think it depends on how I'm feeling at any given point. But I think my na- my last meal would have to be a fried chicken dinner. That is the core of my North Carolinian. Um, and we have we have this place in the south called Bojangles, which is a fast food fried chicken, Creole Cajun fried chicken joint. Okay, um, and that's always my first stop if I ever, whenever I set foot off the plane in North Carolina, that's my first stop for for a meal. Um, to that end, I'm definitely listening to Carolina in My Mind by James Taylor. That's oh, something sure. that I feel like always comes up. It always pops up when I'm trying to trying to clear my head. Drinking is tough. I think um, I think that my my wine palette has changed a lot over the years, and it continues to evolve. So I think anything that I say now will not be true of when I when it is actually my final meal. But I will say that the one thing that will always be timeless for me is a delicious spicy margarita, and I think wow. that's never going to change. I yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> Okay. Well, I, I want people to be able to find you and uh, check out 74. So give us some information before we sign off. Um, yeah. Ha- so the 74 is, uh, again, like I said, the 74 The seventy four is a nonprofit mm-hmm. education-based news site. Um, you can check us out on Twitter. I think it, it's just the 74, but... I think you're better off. You're better off looking at the 74million.org. Okay. Um, you can find Silver Apricot uh, on Instagram at Silver Apricot NYC. And yeah, I think that, I think that's. Is there anything else? No, that's it. I just okay. want to say thank you for being on Drinking on the Job uh, podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye. Can't you see the sunshine? Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar. Yes, I'm gone.